Almost 20 years ago, in June of 2000, the International Human Genome Sequencing Consortium announced that it had produced a rough draft of the human genome. At the White House, then-President Bill Clinton announced that this first draft covered about 90% of the genome at a cost of a whopping $2.7 billion. We are here to celebrate the completion of the first survey of the entire human genome. Without a doubt, this is the most important, most wondrous map ever produced by humankind. But today, you can now sequence your entire genome for just about $1,000. Well, that is if you have the tools and the know-how. About six years after Clinton's announcement, a group of scientists founded the company 23andMe. For a fee, which is typically between $80 and $200, 23andMe sequences a portion of your genome, then sends you detailed reports about where your ancestors likely lived, how traits like your ability to carry a tune or taste cilantro depend on the genetic variants you have, And if you sign up for it, information about your risk for several health conditions. The company now has data on more than 10 million customers, the vast majority of whom also agreed to participate in research studies. This ongoing research provides customers continuing genetic insight into their own phenotypes. And using those same data, scientists at 23andMe have published more than 100 peer-reviewed papers, often with collaborators at academic and other research institutions. If you're a regular Big Biology listener, you know that we've spent a lot of time trying to capture the nuances of how genes affect phenotypes. Rarely are those connections simple. Plasticity, epistasis, epigenetics, it's just not what Hollywood would have us believe. But when you have a billion data points from a population of 10 million people, genetic information can tell you a lot. For instance, in one recent paper, 23andMe scientists used customers' data to identify women at risk for breast cancer. In another recent paper, they identified alleles that influenced the age of onset of Parkinson's disease. These sorts of insight also raise major concerns about privacy, though, and with good reason. If given access, insurers, banks, and other agencies could conceivably use this information in ways not intended by the customers that submitted their samples in the first place. Law enforcement, too, might seek to use these data in unintended ways. In early November, a judge in Florida issued a warrant allowing a detective to search the entire database of GED Match, a company like 23andMe with more than 1 million customers. The U.S. government has requested access to some of the data collected by 23andMe in the past, but the company has pledged to keep their user data private. So far, they appear not to have provided it to anyone but their customers. Still, the successful capture of the Golden State Killer in 2018 by this kind of creative sleuthing will continue to put pressure on these companies. Another potential risk, or reward depending on your perspective, is finding an unexpected relative in your family tree. These revelations occur so frequently that 23andMe has created a resource page to help customers work through the ensuing family confusion. In this episode, we talked to 23andMe product scientists Samantha Esselman and Ruth Tennant about the science of using DNA information to understand ancestry and health outcomes, and where and how uncertainty arises in the process. By the way, Sam sounds like this. The results you see in these tests are really reliant on the reference populations you use. And Ruth sounds like this. So the, the whole genome would be like all 3 billion DNA letters. The exome is just the couple percent of the genome that codes for proteins. Leading up to this episode, 23andMe sent me a free kit and I had my own DNA analyzed. Marty had had his DNA analyzed before this interview. For part of the show, we talked about the reports we got back, including which one of us has more Neanderthal DNA in our genomes. Spoiler, I'm jealous I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. And you're listening to Big Biology. Well, let's just say, so, so Ruth and Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Um, really 
really great. We get to arrange this conversation. And um, I wanted to start out just by talking a little bit about your your process and which I've been through myself recently. So about six or eight weeks ago, I got one of your kits in the mail. Uh, it had a little plastic vial in it, which I spit into and mixed it up with something else and sent it back to you guys. And I'm just wondering, like, what happens to it at 23andMe after, after you guys get those things back? They take your DNA, they chop it up to pieces, they amplify it so you have a lot, and then they apply it to a genotyping chip yeah. so that we can test for about 600,000 places in the genome. Um, and we're hmm. looking for basically locations where we know there are differences between people, so we call those genetic variants or DNA variants. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and mm -hmm. so we get that raw data, those, those SNPs back from the lab, and then we use that, as Ruth said, to generate reports for people, whether they're health reports or um, reports about your traits or your ancestry. Hmm. And what, so you, you use the word SNP, what, what is a SNP? And I mean, our, our audience is pretty knowledgeable, I imagine they know, but let's just be careful, make sure we're all on the yeah. same page. So what's a SNP? And, and I think, Ruth, you alluded to why you use those markers over other options, but do you want to spell that out? Sure. So a SNP is a single nucleotide polymorphism. So it's a location in the genome where there's like a couple different options of letters. So you could have an A or a T or someone could have a C or a G. Um, we use genotyping um, because it allows us to capture a lot of information uh, for a pretty low price point. So it's kind of much less expensive than sequencing the whole genome or even sequencing just the exome. Um, so it's a good option mm -hmm. for a lot of kind of consumer-oriented products. Okay. And the exome is different from the genome? I mean, what's the, what are these two things? So the, the whole genome would be like all 3 billion DNA letters. The exome is just the couple percent of the genome that codes for proteins. So you can get a lot of information okay. just from that too. So, so I know the, the price of whole genome sequencing has been coming down dramatically. So are you guys going to be switching over to whole genome sequencing at some point uh, as it becomes easier and cheaper? Um, I think we're always discussing that possibility, um, and I think it would be irresponsible of us as a company to, to not be thinking about that. Um, but as Ruth was saying, there is this sort of, um, at, currently there's a, kind of a prohibitive price point for customers at least um, for, the, for pursuing that. So definitely open to it. Maybe it'll happen in the future. Always mm -hmm. talking about it. What, what, what does it cost to sequence a human genome now? I think it's on the order, depending on how you kind of get to it, it's on the order of like 500 to $1,000, depending okay. on if it's like exome or whole genome or what type of whole genome sequencing there is, because there's all sorts of different kinds of whole genome sequencing that you can do. So um, mm -hmm. it's, yeah, just kind of in that range. Right. Hmm. And what's the difference? So you guys are, are effectively, you guys, meaning 23andMe, are looking at the variable loci. So what's the difference in uh, how much you'd get from a whole genome versus the, you know, loci that you're looking at right now? I mean, how many more are out there if you were going whole genome? I guess the answer is a little different depending on if you're thinking about the health product or the ancestry product. Um, and I think mm -hmm. there would be benefits to using whole genome sequencing in both cases. But um, yeah, I mean, the big limitation of using a genotyping chip for health is that a lot of diseases, genetic diseases and other diseases are very complex. And so there might be mm -hmm. lots of different potential variants that could impact someone's risk. And we're only able to look at a subset of those. Um, mm -hmm. So that's kind of the balance that we strike. We can offer it and we can, you know, pick up a lot of DNA variants, but not all of them for a low price. Right. But there's certainly a trade-off between sequencing and genotyping for the health mm -hmm. side. And then mm -hmm. I think with Ancestry, um, there's a lot of human genetic variation that um, 
on the one hand, genotyping is able to capture depending on the populations that have been studied in the past. Um, and at this point, most populations have been um, uh, fairly extensively studied. So I guess you could, in theory, get more granular ancestry results with whole genome sequencing. Um, but I think at the moment, again, the trade-off between um, what it would take to get there and how much money it would be for the customer, um, I think we're not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let me see if I can paraphrase the differences with uh, ancestry sorts of things. You sort of have a sense of what variation is out there, and you're trying to use variation in you know, sequences of the, of the customers to sort of assign them to one group versus the other. Whereas with the health-associated types of things, the A, things are complex, and B, there might be a lot of other things that would require you to get a lot more of the genome to be able to pick up the unknowns or the, the exceptionally rares. So sure. yep. sort of genome types of approaches are going to be more valuable going forward with the health types of efforts. Thinking very far forward, for sure, I think that's going to be something to, to always for us to think about. Yep. Well, should we talk about our own ancestry reports? Yes, Marty? let's be selfish. That, uh, Why not right, do that? Let's do it. <laughs> um, so, so I got mine back just a couple weeks ago. I had a peak, uh, only a peak, and um, I guess no super major surprises because um, uh, I know a little bit about my ancestry from you know my mom and dad's sides of the family. But I'm about forty um, percent British Isles, which is localized around London and Glasgow. And about 33% kind of Southern German from the Baden-Württemberg area. And then about 19% broadly Northern European and 3% Scandinavian. Um, and Marty's are like, I think, relatively parallel to that. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, maybe we're long lost relatives. Uh, <laughs> could, could, could be. Could so, be. You want to say what yours are too, Marty? Yeah, I mean, like you said, it's practically the same thing. 55% British Isles, Greater London and Cork County in Ireland, 18% um, French German. So we start to differentiate a little bit there than North Rhine and Westphalia area. And then the remaining 21% or most of the rest of it, 21% broadly northern, Northwestern European. So yeah, pretty, pretty yeah. similar areas. Yeah. So, so I guess, I guess the question is, so how, how do you, how do you arrive at those percentages and, and how, how reliable are they and, and on what does the uncertainty depend? At the, at the core of the product for, for the, for generating these reports, we compare your DNA to the DNA of diverse reference, reference populations from around the world. Um, and so when we, when 23andMe started in, I don't know, 2007, um, because we didn't have a diverse customer database to pull from at that point, because we were just starting out, um, we relied on publicly available data sets. Um, so data sets where people had annotated, you know, this, these, these people in this database come from this part of the world, these people say they come from this part of the world, um, and then we can use that to start building these, these reference populations. Um, but now, you know, 2019 minus 2007, 12 years plus on, um, we have many um, on the order of over 6 million customers who um, are genotyped and they have diverse ancestries. And so um, for the ones that have agreed to participate in research, we can use them as part of these diverse reference populations. Um, and so the more reference populations you have, the more um, people in these reference populations, the more granular you can get with 
um, generating ancestry reports or ancestry results for people. So the way that works essentially is, and I've said some of this already, but you take a group of people whose DNA has known origins, so you can say, for example, British and Irish, um, and then we use those people as the reference group or the reference population for British and Irish ancestry. Um, we remove outliers in this process. Um, and then um, this is still kind of building the algorithm. We test those models or we test those groups that we've chosen. Um, and so in that step, we can check how often that model that we've just built, how often um, it correctly calls that British and Irish ancestry. Um, and so we, we only, we generally only add these populations into the model or we like for, for the model we use for customers, we only add them if um, it is able to correctly guess the population in this test more than say 90% of the time. And we report those scores in um, a white paper that you can get through your um, scientific details in your report. Um, and that those scores are essentially showing how often there are false positives and how often there are false negatives. Um, and so at that point we have, um, the algorithm or the model. And then when a customer comes in, we get the raw data, we break up their genome into thousands of small segments that are on the order of about 300 SNP windows. So you take 300 of those spots that we capture in genotyping um, per window. And we take that window, it, we've settled on 300 SNPs because that's um, a length that is both small enough to provide some um, precision or some you know, level of precise results for people, but it's also um, short enough that you can generally assume that that's representing, that window represents kind of one geographical ancestral population. Um, and so we take that window and we compare it to all the different populations or reference populations that we have. And um, the one that it matches the most with the most um, likelihood or the highest likelihood, that's what we assign to you in your results. And you can basically take these thousands of different segments, add them up, and that's how we generate your, your percentages. So mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I can it, talk it, a little bit more about... Well, and, and actually, let me just let me just interject and say, just try to paraphrase what you said. So I, I think what you're saying is that, you know, these different populations over time develop unique variants or unique alleles that you're picking up in your your analysis of the SNPs. And so, you know, I have, I have a bunch of percentage of British Isle stuff. So that means that I have myself alleles that are very common among people from the British Isles, right? Mm -hmm. I guess maybe something that that's getting at is um, the results you see in these tests are really reliant on the reference populations you use. So we're using living people essentially to generate these reference populations, but and, and then we're comparing your DNA to those populations to see like which, which population it looks the most like, but you could imagine that instead we would use um, reference populations from ancient DNA samples from 2000 years ago and you, um, your results would then reflect whatever those reference populations are, like whatever you most closely match to. So it really depends on what your reference populations are and who's in them. Um, so, so the other thing that really caught my attention, at least in, in my report, was um, there, there were also trace amounts of, uh, you know, sort of unexpected uh, uh, ethnic groups in my, my own ancestry. And so I had about 0.5% Ashkenazi Jew and about 0.3% Nigerian. 
And and so I'm guessing what that means is that, you know, at a very few SNPs, I had alleles that were common in those in those populations. But like, like, what does that really mean kind of functionally about my ancestry? And, you know, is this is this sort of alleles that are floating around in the wild? Or can I imagine, you know, some Nigerian prince is a long lost ancestor? Uh, <laughs> I think that's a really good question. And for me, the answer typically depends on on what the customer is looking for or what they already know about their ancestry. Um, what I mean by that is, I mean, for, for some ancestries, like, for example, your small percentage of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, that population is very genetically distinctive. Um, and that is very likely to represent some distant um, Ashkenazi Jewish ancestor, or at least ancestry that is very similar to Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry. Um, other populations that are a little bit less distinctive, it might be a little hard to say, but um, if a customer is looking at their results, um, their ancestor results, they see a bunch of percentages for different populations, and then at the bottom they might see this little drop-down shelf that um, says trace ancestry, and within that shelf there, there's going to be um, very typically very small percentages, maybe around 0.1%, or in the case of your results, around 0.3%. Um, and these are for populations that are not closely related to the populations that are in your main results. Um, and so I guess an example there is, let's take a customer who's 99.5% European, um, genetically European, and the remaining 0.5% consists of say like 0.2% unassigned DNA, you know, we can't figure out what that DNA is, or uh, maybe 0.2% broadly Northern West Asian or Central and South Asian or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me at that point, there's a couple ways that can go. Because at first glance, a customer might look at that and think, that doesn't seem right, that doesn't match everything I know about my ancestry. But um, we choose to report that information to customers because in many cases, it is very likely to be suggestive of real, however distant, ancestry. Um, in some cases, I think it's fair to say that it might be a false positive result because we are just looking at, you know, given this 300 SNP window, what mm -hmm. is the most likely ancestry or, or for those 300 SNPs, what population does it match most often? That said, there is also a slider at the bottom of your ancestor results page where you can look at your chromosome painting and you can slide the confidence threshold around so that um, we, we report your results to you at a 50% confidence. And that means that it's not like flipping a coin where maybe it's this, maybe it's not, it's a 50-50 chance. It's not like that. It's more like 50% um, of the time, the most likely ancestry is, say, British and Irish. It doesn't mean that the next most likely ancestry is Nigerian or Chinese or something like that. It just it, it's probably going to be the next most likely one is something really close to British and Irish, like French and German or Scandinavian mm -hmm. or something like that. So mm -hmm. we report it at that fifty percent confidence, just so customers have that information of what we what our algorithm predicts to be the most likely ancestry. But you can change that toggle to sixty percent confidence, seventy percent confidence, all the way up to ninety percent confidence, and so. What that's helpful in determining is if you see a trace ancestry result that you think is a little sketchy, then you can take it out to 90% and see if it changes. If, and a lot of the times they, they're really sticky. They stick around.
how much of the this variation do you think comes from the the methods that you use? I mean, do you guys resequence many different times, or I mean, I would imagine that the error is not really that that's not really the source of a lot of this variation. Yeah. So we do update results. We we describe it as a living analysis. Um, mm -hmm. And that's because when you change reference populations, when you add people to them, when you add whole populations, um, I've described it before as if you imagine like a, a spider web, if you pull on one corner of that spider web, the things that the strands really close to that corner, they're going to be affected more, they're going to change more, yeah. but all corners of that spider web are going to be, they're going to feel that pull, they're going to be affected by right. that change. And so right. even if we update um, the spider web of, human populations, if we update that by adding reference populations in Southeast Asia, but you're 100% European, you might still see your results change just because of how that whole web kind of shifts. Um, yeah. And I think different algorithms at different companies um, or even academic institutions, different algorithms are going to maybe be different or less sensitive to some of those changes. But I think it really gets down to the fact that humans migrate a lot there's not, we, we try to categorize these distinct populations, but it's just kind of a continuum in all directions. And so sure. putting boundaries on that is actually quite difficult um, unless you have a really, really isolated population on an island somewhere that yeah. hasn't had anyone migrate to it in a long time. So there's always going to be uncertainty in the results. And, and um, whenever you change the reference populations, it's going to shift results either way. So yeah. do you have in the, uh, in the coffers of customer service uh, histories, do you have a, a, a good anecdote where, you know, someone sort of said, I got my results, this really didn't make any sense. And then went back and revisited the data and lo and behold, things were really different. I don't know if I have a specific story to point to, but that I, I'm pretty sure that happens um, sometimes <laughs> for the better and sometimes for the worse. Um, for example, we just did an update in South Asia where we started for customers with South Asian ancestry. They used to have one option, um, and it was just broadly South Asian, and that's all they got. And now we have, I think, seven populations in um, India alone, and that's mm -hmm. great. Um, but it does affect people who are kind of bordering that region. Um, this isn't really an answer to your question, but it's more to, to say that, like, when we update this algorithm, it's really, it can be really good for some people. And then for other people, maybe it adds a trace ancestry here and there. And that really throws them and kind of messes up their whole sense of identity. And I think that's, again, a push and pull in the product is like, it's great when we can change it and update it for people, especially parts of the world that have been kind of underrepresented in the past mm -hmm. and, and things mm -hmm. like this. But um, it does affect other people in negative ways. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so are you guys going out of your way to, to get more samples from underrepresented parts of the world? Is that, is that one of the yeah. ways to sort of increase reliability altogether? Absolutely. Yeah. So we, um, a couple yeah. years How ago, do you do now, that? We, we did a project called the African genetics project where essentially if you say that your four grandparents were born in a certain country in Africa, then, and that was just from many different countries in Africa, so, like, if you say your four grandparents were from Nigeria or Cameroon or whatever, um, then we would give you a free kit to test with. Um, mm -hmm. And that was a really successful program, and that led to us updating our reference populations in Africa um, in 2017, I believe, mm -hmm. 18 maybe. Um, 
I forget what the starting number is, but it was on the order of like four populations in Africa, and we bumped it to 13 populations. So that was a really exciting change for us. And more recently, we've done a global genetics project, so a very similar project where we mm-hmm. invite people from a, a list of countries where we have poor coverage or, or poor representation, and um, we invite people to um, get free kits if they say that they have um, four grandparents from that country. And mm-hmm. so that's mm-hmm. massively helping with... Um, global representation and coverage for our reference populations. Nice, nice. You guys could probably predict this. I'm sure once you put it in there, most of your customers got so excited about the Neanderthal angle. Um, Let's see, Art Art is uh, 57% Neanderthal variants, and I, I think he was actually sad that I had 72. Is that... Were you, were you it's like super you not enough? fair that you have more Neanderthal than I do. <laughs> I see. I would have expected you to say, "Of course, you have more Neanderthal than I do." <laughs> no, I'm furious. No, but 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 just to be clear, so so you have 72 percent more Neanderthal variants in your genome than than the rest of their customers. Yeah, the, the right? rest of the customers. It doesn't yeah, mean yeah. you're 72 percent Neanderthal. Well, no. uh, yeah. some others would say. So so how do you how do you do that analysis? So, so we uh, have a great relationship with a lot of the uh, kind of academic uh, groups that are kind of at the cutting edge of ancient DNA research. And so they've shared over time, and I think we credit them in our report, we, they've shared lists of SNPs of these alleles or variants um, that are believed to have been inherited by Neanderthals. So variation that exists in the human population that comes from Neanderthals. And we have some subset of those variants of those alleles that we have on our genotyping chip. And so we can give a report to customers that basically says, oh, you know, thanks to this list, we can give customers a report and say, you know, of the 1,400 or so variants, Neanderthal variants that we've looked for in your DNA, we found 200. And compared to other people in the database, that's, that puts you in the 60th percentile or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah. We, so, so what what actual fraction of, of our genomes like are Neanderthal? Yeah. So, because uh-huh. we short answer is between one to two percent of your genome if you uh, come from European or Asian populations, or and also from um, Indigenous American populations, between one to two percent of your genome is probably going to be from your distant Neanderthal ancestors. Um, if you have Sub-Saharan African ancestry, that's typically more like 0%, just because Neanderthals are, there's no evidence that they ever went to Africa or interbred with people in Africa, Um, and so that's Mm -hmm. part of that. Um, But we don't report these these results to you as a percentage, just because we're only really sampling a pretty small piece of of the possible um, Neanderthal DNA that humans could have. So if we were, if we knew we were sampling all possible Neanderthal ancestry across your genome, we might report a percentage to you, but um, since mm-hmm. we're at the end of the day, the report is basically look how cool it is that you have a little DNA from Neanderthals, <laughs> and then yeah. what our goal is is to try to make people think more deeply about this kind of deep hominin ancestry and how all of these different yeah. human-like things were interbreeding and interacting with each other. So it's more mm-hmm. the for mm-hmm. me, it's more the kind of scientific joy of it than the you know specific 
uh, you have exactly 1.15% Anical ancestry. Right, right. So so another thing we've been hearing a lot about in the news recently, the scientific news, is Denisovans and the sort of potential contribution of Denisovan genomes to modern modern human populations. So, But, but there was nothing in, in at least my report about that. So are you guys going to start reporting things like that? So uh, I think Denisovans are super cool. They were Their genome was sequenced a little bit later than the Neanderthal genome was sequenced, and there's far fewer, um, at least described and identified Denisovan samples that we found around the world. Um, specifically, the I think the two places that we found Denisovan remains are um, in a cave in southern Siberia and in the kind of Tibetan plateau. Um, so we don't know as much about them as we know about Neanderthals. We do know, based on the DNA that we do have, that they um, basically the 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 our, we, we share a common ancestor with them, similar to we, the fact that we share a common ancestor with Neanderthals. And then sometime over 500,000 years ago, the lineage of our common ancestor split, leading to um, a branch that gave rise to kind of modern humans and a branch that gave rise to the Neanderthals and the Denisovans. And shortly after that initial split, the Neanderthals and Denisovans split. So technically, they're a little more closely related um, than either is to the modern human right. branch. But, but not by much. But not by much, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I guess a simple way to think about it is that Neanderthals are thought to have mostly evolved within Europe. Denisovans are thought to have mostly evolved within somewhere in the continent of Asia. And then modern humans are thought to have evolved mostly or in this more likely entirely within the continent of Africa. Um, and then kind of as these groups then migrated around and met each other, they interbred and left some traces of their DNA behind. But Denisovans, while it is clear that they that we do carry some of their DNA, it's more it's in more specific pockets of populations. So most people, we have very little. There, there's evidence that most people carry almost zero Denisovan ancestry. So on the order of like 0.1% or less, I see. where Neanderthals I see. were more like 1% to 2%. Um, there, that said, there are populations, um, for example, people in Papua New Guinea and other places in near Oceania. I'm not sure if there's other ways to describe that part of the world, but um, island populations in the South Pacific near Oceania, um, they can have on the order of like 5% Denisovan ancestry, that's in addition to the around 2% Neanderthal ancestry. Um, and so they actually, mm -hmm. a very significant percentage of their genomes is from these um, introgressed mm -hmm. is the term, or like these, these archaic human lineages that interbred with the modern human ancestors. Um, mm -hmm. But if you look outside of that part of the world, it's vanishingly low Denisovan ancestry. Got and it. So Got it. it could be similar in the way we do this report now. In the future, we might say... Um, Oh, we found you know it could be we found one Denisovan variant, but at that point, it's a little it's less clear if that's representing true Denisovan ancestry or just kind of like right some subsequent mutation or something. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, um, got it. But I think the future of kind of an oxymoron, but the future of ancient DNA research is really exciting because um, we're discovering so much. You know, day over day, groups are coming out with really. Um, awesome stories about um, ancient DNA, ancient remains, and what we're learning from them. And for example, within the continent of Africa, you know, that's sort of been the exception in a lot of these cases. In Africa, there's no, we can't find really any Neanderthal DNA, we can't find much Denisovan DNA, but that doesn't mean that 
there wasn't another lineage of archaic hominin that interbred with our ancestors in Africa. The problem mm -hmm. in Africa is that DNA degrades quickly in hot or humid or also in like acidic environments. And so we basically don't have the samples in Africa. There's not a whole lot of ancient DNA, huh? Right. We can't right. compare yeah. them, but people have been using more and more advanced techniques to be able to figure out like basically by subtraction or like process of elimination, they figured out that there is hominin, there, there is archaic hominin interbreeding that happened in Africa relatively hmm. recently that, that we can say it's there, but we can't identify what it came from because we don't have the sample to compare it to. So I see. Like in the DNA of living sub-Saharan Africans, there's bits of it that were like, that's very likely from another archaic type of human, but we just can't put a name to it yet. So, like I said, the future of ancient DNA is very exciting. All right, so last question about ancestry, and then we're going to move on to traits. Um, what are these haplotype things? My father is absolutely obsessed with uh, data from you guys, and all he ever talks about is the haplotype. So my maternal is T, and my paternal is R-DF98. What does that mean? Um, yeah, so haplogroups, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of unfortunately jargony word. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually, on the one hand, quite interesting what's happening with the biology there. So most of the rest of the DNA that we look at is from your autosomes, your, the chromosomes that are inside your nucleus that you inherit from both mom and dad. Um, they're affected by recombination. So it's kind of a mixture. Every, every generation, that DNA gets mixed up a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. But what's cool about haplogroups is that we're looking at specific pieces of DNA that don't get mixed up in every generation. So mm -hmm. in the case of the maternal haplogroup, this is a kind of DNA called mitochondrial DNA, and it's not found in the nucleus of the cell where all those autosomes are found. It's found in the mitochondria of your cells, which are, if you remember from your high school biology classes, this is like the, the mitochondria are the powerhouses of the cell. So they generate mm -hmm. ATP from basically from the food you eat. And they have their own special little loop of DNA that's separate from all of our um, nuclear DNA. And that DNA you only inherit from your mother. And it doesn't get mixed up or crossed over over the generations like the rest of your DNA does. So you can basically track your maternal lineage kind of in this unbroken way going back really far in time by saying, you know, this loop, this tiny loop of DNA that you got from your mom, she got it from her mom and so on back through time. Um, mm -hmm. And we can look at, basically by sequencing or looking at the um, variation in maternal haplogroups around the world, you can kind of paint a picture of ancient human migration and kind of figure out from that variation like a lot that you can't necessarily figure out from present, um, present day DNA. So, so the haplotypes let you go kind of further back in time. Yes, paternal haplogroups are quite similar. This is a, the chromosome, the Y chromosome that's, this chromosome actually is in the nucleus, but it's not, it's the, um, it's a sex chromosome. And because women don't have a Y chromosome, generally speaking, they, the Y chromosome doesn't cross over and um, recombine like the other chromosomes do. And so over the generations, it acts a lot like that mitochondrial DNA where it, it, you, can you can trace it really far back in time along the paternal lineage, so your father's father's father back in time.
Well, let's let's turn now to talking about trade trade analysis and um, so so in the report, uh, you know, I got a long list of different traits of of humans that you analyze, and then what your sort of estimated likelihood is that I would have them or not. And, and I was impressed. I, I think most of them were right on. Um, but um, it, so so for example, you guys thought I would not have a cleft chin, or that I would not have back hair, and indeed I don't. Um, I'm pretty happy about the back hair thing. Um, but, but it also thinks that I'll have flat feet and a unibrow and I don't have either one of those. And I know Marty's, Marty's was, yeah, sort of I'm funny a little too, bit so. more upset. Um, I'm not supposed to have a bald spot or lose hair and, uh, your, your system's broken basically. <laughs> So, so I guess I guess the overall question is like, you know, how, how do you estimate the the probability of having these traits from the genetic data that you you pick up, and why are they, you know, mo- mostly right but not always right? Yeah, absolutely, it's a great question. We do hear that from our customers as well, and I am in the same boat as you guys. I uh, one that particularly jumped out to me, it said that I was likely to prefer salty snacks over sweet snacks, and that is not right at all. Totally not true. Tons of M&M's. That's like my go-to snack. Um, so yeah, to, to kind of talk about how we generate these trait predictions in the first place, so we're using those DNA variants, those locations in the genome that are known to differ between people. Um, and there's kind of two different approaches we take. So in some cases, the genetics is pretty straightforward, and there'll be kind of just one or a couple DNA variants that really strongly influence the chances that someone will have a trait. So to use an example um, from from one of our reports, um, we can talk about earwax type. So people mm. generally either have like dark, sticky, wet earwax or dry, flaky, like lighter colored earwax. And it turns out that there's like a single variant in this gene called ABC11 um, that basically determines which type of earwax you have. Um, and it's scientists have actually figured out like why if you have these particular variants, you end up having like more fat inside of your um, cells and that results in like the sticky wet earwax. Um, so in that case, you can kind of use genetics at one particular location to make a pretty good prediction about whether someone's going to have a certain earwax type. Um, mm-hmm. But that's generally the exception rather than the rule. So most traits are way more complicated than that. And they involve like right. dozens or hundreds or even thousands of variants. Um, so in that case, we use a different approach to make the predictions. Um, and we start off doing something called a genome-wide association study or a GWAS. Um, so one really cool thing, Sam kind of alluded to this earlier, is we have this um, big database of customers, and about 80% of them have consented to participate in research. And what that means is that they'll answer different survey questions about themselves, so about their health, their traits, their lifestyle. Um, and then that allows us to basically, we have their genetic data, and their kind of the A's, T's, C's, and G's, and then we have their phenotypic data, all those survey questions they answered, and we can put those together to find genetic associations. Um, so I can like give an example maybe from one of our reports. So we have a report called Ability to Match a Musical Pitch, which is basically if someone sings a note to you, can you sing it back and be into yeah. it? Mm-hmm. Um, so we'd start, we'd ask our research participants whether they can match a musical pitch. Some of them would say no, someone would say yes. And we'd compare the DNA between those two different groups and look for DNA variants that are more common in one group than the other. Um, and each of those variants on its own is really going to only have a tiny impact on the chances of someone being able to match a musical pitch, but you can combine them into what's called a polygenic score. Um, so that's kind mm-hmm. of combining the impact of all of these different variants. So it's like the constellation of all the variants, yeah. Exactly. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And so you end up with this one number, the score, and the higher the person's score, the more likely they are to be able to match the musical pitch. So that's kind of the second approach that we take. Um, hmm. So going back to your original question about kind of like getting these traits wrong, mm-hmm. um, we don't like to think of them as getting them wrong. Um, we kind of, as you mentioned, <laughs> we're giving you a likelihood. So we do sure, give you like a sure. high level result of like, 
likely to have a unibrow or likely not to have, you know, back hair or whatever. Um, but we also give you a percentage, right? So it's like a people with genetics like yours, 62%, you know, in my case, like prefer salty snacks and 38% prefer sweet snacks. And I happen to fall in that 38%. We have to remember that we're like only looking at genetics, right? There's tons of other factors that go into whether or not you're going to have a trait, um, especially for traits like you know, ability to match a musical pitch or sweet versus salty preference. You can imagine that your life experiences are going to influence that a lot. Sure, so I sure. think that's important to keep in mind is like, we're never going to be able to make perfect predictions about many of these traits because they're not entirely genetically determined. So what fraction of the, the traits that you do report, I think on the list are some 30 or 40 different ones that come up on that summary sheet, what fraction of those are GWAS versus the sort of, you know, more straightforward single variant types of things like earwax? Um, great question. I'm not sure the exact numbers. The vast majority are based on GWAS. And even some of the single variants hmm. ones that we report on were originally based on a GWAS. And we just only, you know, identified a couple of variants. So um, yeah, earwax is an example. Eye color is another example that's kind of strongly influenced by just a few genetic markers. And excuse me, in most cases, um, but most of them are based on these genetic models that we build. Hmm. And is there some rhyme or reason to why this particular list? I mean, there's an infinite number of things that could go on there, all sorts of our quirks and stuff. Why, what it's the, why do you guys pick this batch? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I think it's a mixture of things. We need things that have genetic signal, right? So there's a mm -hmm. ceiling to how well our predictions will do that kind of depend on the heritability of the trait, how much of the variation is due to genetics. And so we need to pick things that have some genetic signal. Um, it has to be a question that we've asked our research participants, and we think that they will be excited to answer and, and get a report on. So it's kind of like a mix of different things. But you're right, there's tons of possible trait reports we could put out, and we're kind of really scratching the surface with these. So, so another source of noise in all of this must be um, bad reporting from people about their phenotypes, right? So how much do you trust people's responses uh, to these things? Yes, uh, that's a great question. Um, so I think there's a couple things to say there. Um, one is, um, so that is something that we've thought about, and very early on, probably back in like maybe 2012 or 2013, we did a study trying to see um, what percentage of genetic associations that have been reported in the literature could we replicate in our database. And I think mm. based on the power, so the number of people that we had reporting on those phenotypes, we were able to replicate something like 75% of the genetic association. So it was pretty high. Um, when we do these analyses, oftentimes we'll also compare our results against published data. So we recently put out a report on type 2 diabetes based on a genetic model, and we compared the GWAS results that we got to GWAS results from other published studies, just to make sure that we were kind of getting the same signal. Um, and I think the other thing to say is that when you have really big numbers of people, you can sometimes wash out the effects of sure. reporting errors. And so sure. we kind of have that going for us yeah. also. Although you could imagine that like, you know, some traits are, are super benign, right? Like people probably aren't going to make stuff up about whether they can smell asparagus or sneeze in the sun, yeah. but, but people might sort of overestimate their ability to match pitches, right? Like, because that's sort of a thing that people feel like they should be able to do. That is true. Uh, that is true. So yeah, there could be some uh, sort of systematic difference in how people are answering those. Um, luckily there are things that are yeah. very high risk and we wouldn't worry if people kind of got an inflated sense of, oh, you're, you know, 75% likely versus 50% likely, but sure. I think that's definitely I see. true. I see. Okay. I have to ask too, but being in Florida and studying mosquitoes, when that was done, the sort of disposition to be bitten, how did that work? Is that also ask people about you're at a picnic or you're the one that's putting on the deet or? Yes, that is self-report. Yeah. We did not force people to go in and kind of get bitten and count how many times <laughs> they got bitten and that sort of thing. So that's also based on self-report. So you could imagine that some bias could creep in there, but hopefully by asking a lot of people, we kind of 
can get a sense. And yeah, we have do, you, do you have any? Yeah. So, so Marty, are you more or less likely to be bitten? I'm more by the yeah. Oh, I mean, I think I'm, I, less. I was predicted I'm gonna to go be to more, parties with you. More. No, I, I, I'm totally the, the insect repellent. <laughs> yeah, for I never get else. bitten. So. Yeah, my daughter is terrible for her. She actually pulls them away from me, so she's a oh, she's no. a total sink. She's oh. the one that you want to come to the picnics for other reasons <laughs> besides just the uh, insect uh, oh. issue. Um, do you know anything, Ruth, about that particular, like, what was the genetic details that drove that study in the first place? Is there some particular simple variant there for the mosquitoes, or was that another one of sort of polygenic? That's complexity? polygenic, yep. So that was yeah. based on internal research where we identified lots of different variants um, associated okay. with mosquito bite attractiveness, yep. Let me circle back to the, this issue we talked about earlier of, of the value of sequencing whole genomes. So, so I guess how much do you miss in terms of genetic contributions to polygenic traits by looking at SNPs rather than getting the entire genome sequencing? And, and could you have a lot more power for some of the more highly polygenic traits? Yeah, another really good question. Um, I think for, for building genetic models, um, probably whole genome sequencing isn't as important as when you're looking at highly penetrant single variants that you could completely miss if you weren't sequencing, right? That's the, the concern is that you might have tested for three, these three variants, but you didn't test for these other 10 and you would miss it, miss it completely. Um, one thing that we, so when we do these GWAS analyses, the variants that we're picking up as signal probably aren't the causal variants that are actually influencing the trait. They're probably neighboring variants that are inherited together and they're, we sometimes say they're tagging the causal variant. So as long as they're tagging oh. it pretty well, it probably doesn't matter that we have, we're missing the actual causal variant on right. our chip. So, so as long as the SNPs are sort of densely enough arrayed on the genome, you're going to pick up statistically associations with the loci that actually matter. Exactly, exactly. And so, one, okay, one place where it. that breaks down a little bit is trying to translate between populations, right? So you can imagine that the causal variant might be the same in African-Americans and Europeans, but the tag SNPs wouldn't be the same because of the different kind of structure of the genome. Um, the different haplotypes. And so that's one thing that we always think about is when we're building a genetic model is making sure that we can tweak it or adjust it to make sure that it still performs reasonably well in another ethnicity as well. Well, let me ask here at the end too about um, sort of other kinds of research that you guys are leveraging your your genetic databases for, um, and in particular thinking about um, genetically based diseases. So, um, you know, Parkinson's, um, some some different kinds of cancer that have genetic signatures, uh, you know, the breast cancer alleles, those sorts of things. So, 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 what are you guys doing to try to chase down genetic underpinnings of of these diseases? Yeah, um, so I think there's there's kind of two different ways that we think about diseases that we report on, at least. So one um, is looking at variants that we know have been published in the literature to have an impact on risk for certain disease. So BRCA variants would be one, like you mentioned, for breast cancer risk, other other cancers. Um, in that case, is, case, we're looking for variants that have already been discovered, and we're interpreting them for our customers. Um, mm -hmm. Because we use a genotyping chip, we're not going to make we're not going to discover novel alleles, right? We can't like suddenly find something in someone's genome that is not on the genotyping chip to begin with. Um, right. But what we can so so, so, the, so the genotyping chip is sort of is sort of uh, differentiating pre-discovered alleles, basically. That's it, right. Okay. So we know okay. what six hundred thousand SNPs yeah. are on that array, and yeah, those yeah, are the yeah, only yeah. ones that we'll be able to pick up. Exactly. Got it. Um, but on the flip side of that, one really exciting kind of new avenue in the health prediction space is poly these polygenic risk scores. 
Um, and that's something that we're really interested in. So we do have a report, as I mentioned, on type 2 diabetes that used data from more than 2 million 23andMe consented research participants. We, you know, asked people whether they had been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes or not. We built a genetic model, and then we made a prediction about people's likelihood based on their genetics. And so that's something we're super excited about, is kind of expanding that into other spaces. And, you know, outside of 23andMe, there's a lot of work being done building genetic models for heart disease and breast cancer as a way of saying, like, you may not have a highly penetrant variant for breast cancer, like a BRCA variant, but based on kind of your polygenic risk, might you still be at increased risk and you could do different screening and, and prevention actions and that sort of thing. So it's a super mm -hmm. exciting field and something that we're really eager to get involved in. Mm -hmm. and, and so you guys are collaborating with different research groups around the world, presumably? Yeah, yeah. we have a lot of collaborations um, with academics around the world. Typically, those um, are focused kind of on publishing rather than building reports. Um, but we do consult with people who are experts in the polygenic risk space to make sure the kind of things that we're doing are um, up to snuff with what people are doing in the field, kind of in the academic way. So yeah, we have lots of collaborations, um, and we've been able to publish lots of papers based on those. Have you found a long-lost relative using a direct-to-consumer genetic test? Are you a researcher collaborating with 23andMe? We'd love to hear from you about your experiences. You can always reach out to us through our website, or you can send us an email at info at bigbiology.org, or contact us over social media. If you're listening this far into the podcast, you're definitely a fan of the show, but we want you to become a super fan. Become a Big Biology patron at patreon.com slash bigbio. Patrons contribute just a little money each month to support the production of the podcast, which right now is almost an entirely volunteer effort. Our patrons feel great about supporting science communication, but they also get exclusive audio extras and access to show notes for every episode. And what better time of the year to become a patron or to make a donation? We love putting together this podcast for you, but with a little bit of help, we can do a lot more. Please support the show on a recurring basis at patreon.com bigbio or by making a one-time donation at www.bigbiology.org. Donations are tax-exempt. Next up on Big Biology, we talked to Jenny Regan and Dan Nussie, researchers at the University of Edinburgh, who published a really exciting paper in functional ecology on the role of diet and food restriction in aging. I think, first of all, we put to bed once and for all this uh, idea that basically mortality is so high in the wild that animals and other organisms in the world don't experience senescence. That's clearly wrong. And where we look in the right kind of way, we see this process. Keep an eye on our social media feeds to stay up to date on upcoming episodes and live events. In the coming weeks, we'll talk to Felicia Kiesing and Rick Osfeld about the dilution effect in disease ecology. And then we talk to Scott Turner about the critical importance of homeostasis in the existence and origin of life and the basis of his newest book, Purpose and Desire. Thanks to Matt Blois for producing the episode. Chloe Ramsey helps with social media. Mike Levine helps with social media and Patreon. And as always, Steve Lane manages the website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear. <laughs>